Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code Slate Money. And by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and Welcome to the Davos edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Fusion, and this week I'm coming at you from Davos. This is the distinction which no one really understands. Davos is this huge alpine gabfest clusterfuck uh, conference which happens at the top of a Swiss Alp in January every year. And the town which it's held in is this Swiss town called Davos, which is normally a kind of sleepy second-rate ski resort and for one week a year just becomes this Militarized zone. Militarized zone. Yes, well, this is, this is one of the things we're going to talk about. They don't let you cross the street. <laughs> so the woman talking about the Swiss guards and the astonishing number of machine guns that you see around here is Jenny Anderson. Jenny, tell us who you work for and what you do. My name is Jenny Anderson and I have a drinking problem. No, I work for the New York Times. I'm here in Davos for the first time ever. Jenny I'm is what's known as a, a Davos newbie. I am based in London and I cover finance. And of course, we are dialed in over the largest fiber network in the world, which belongs to a company called Eurovision. It's not just a song contest, you know. Um, We're dialed in over Eurovision's fiber network to Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix and Jenny. And also Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Jordan. Hey. You know, don't you think Davos would be more entertaining if they did somehow combine it with the Eurovision contest? As if, if maybe Larry <laughs> Summers had to get up and, like, belt a, like, some pop... No? Are you guys not... Okay, anyway. Sounding Hi, so scary. Clearly you haven't <laughs> seen Larry Summers recently. <laughs> and on the show today, we are going to talk about Davos and what it means in the World Economic Forum. 
We're then going to talk about the European Central Bank's quantitative easing. That's the big news of the week. And finally, we're going to talk about, there was this guy in America called Barack Obama who gave a speech and there was something about taxes. And anyway, Jordan knows about that and he's going to explain that. But first, we're going to talk about our hosts up in, up in Davos. So Jenny, tell me, as a, as a Davos newbie, but now automatic instant Davos expert, is Davos just a bunch of CEOs having parties and being impressed by the fact they're next to And a bunch of reporters Joe being Montana. extremely anxious about not being at the right parties and not in the right interviews and not in the right place at the right time at any moment. Davos That's what it the, is for me. Davos, by the way, is, an anxiety the global, inducing is the global, marathon. It's the global headquarters of FOMO. Every single person in Davos has an acute case of fear of missing out. It's not just the reporters. It's even the heads of state. They're all convinced that there's a more secret, more exclusive, better party up the road, up the chalet. You know, there's, everyone is insecure. Wait, a question, question. Anyway. Is, there, is there like, I know there's a hill involved, maybe even a mountain. Is that sort of the ranking of the hierarchy or like more exclusive things happening higher up? No, the more exclusive, well, there, there are a few sort of private dinners and private chalets and that kind of thing. But the most exclusive thing is this thing called Igwell. What? Which you only ever hear about in Davos. Now, Jenny, have you? I have absolutely no idea what Felix is talking about. <laughs> that's, confirming that's my theory that as a Davos just, newbie, I am guessing I am that Felix just behind. made up that word. He just made it up. I, he probably I, did. He's, he sees that I feel badly and he's trying to make me feel worse. I swear <laughs> I am not making this up. I swear I am not making this up. There's this Form thing called There's this thing called Igwell, which stands for the Informal Gathering of World Economic Leaders. And it's basically that is so wanky. the top finance ministers and central bank governors getting together in a room and having completely off the record schmoozy conversations with each other, which no one else is allowed to um, know about. Except that two years ago when I was working for Reuters, uh, one of our Reuters reporters found out where the Igwell meeting was being held, which of the secret rooms in the conference center it was in. And of course, they couldn't get into the room. But after all the finance ministers left, they ran into the room and took a photograph of the whiteboard. And, that was and what was on scoop. it? Do tell. Absolutely nothing interesting. I was going to say, a list of what they wanted for dinner. <laughs> exactly. People are no more interesting off the record than they are on the record most of the time. So I, but, th this actually brings me to a question, a, a, a semi-serious yes. question. What, yes. So... I'm curious why, like, what's the real reason rich people or like rich and the rich and powerful go to this conference? Is it just like a giant warm jacuzzi or not kind of a cold bath? Uh, oh yeah, warm jacuzzi bath for your ego? Or is it like, is there something le legitimate that goes on that they could not do elsewhere? That, that is there something that they accomplish? And more, more than that, is it something that benefits them or is it something that benefits yeah. other people? Oh, that, so that's too... Awesomely excellent questions. Jenny, do you want to take one of them? Well, I'll take a stab at I mean, the the boilerplate answer of all the CEOs is they're going to get more meetings accomplished in, you know, four days here than they could in nine million frequent flyer miles spent going around the world meeting each other. And so, yeah, there is that sense of the jacuzzi. They just have to wander from room to room to see each other. Uh but do things actually get done? I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of been told by a lot of CEOs I've talked to, you're, you're not supposed to close the deal here. You're supposed to sort of, you're supposed to yeah, schmooze, you're is, supposed to drink, you're supposed to inquire schmoozing. about each other's children's private schools. Like th That's the stuff you talk about. You don't do a deal here, but you sort of pave the way to do the deal here. This is where, exactly, this is where you get to know individuals. And this is frankly why 
so many journalists come to Davos, it's not because anyone ever commits news at Davos, but rather it's because this is the one time of the year that you can hang out with Jamie Dimon at the CNBC party and have a normal conversation with him about something other than, you know, excuse me, but haven't you just had to pay $20 billion in fines and, you know, all of these kind of questions. There's a sort of informality and you get to know each other a little bit personally, which can be ha- helpful sometimes. And you can talk about your footwear a lot, which is extremely <laughs> important. It seems to be a topic of about 20% of conversations in Davos is about what footwear you wear, where you got it, and whether you've changed it from the prior year. Can, can I think of it as kind of the machine that revolves the revolving door? It's, oh, God. It creates that sort of personal connection that later central bankers get to be bankers and vice versa. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. There's definitely, you get the connections within the the people who do the revolving door, the sort of top levels of the um, official sector and the private sector are definitely hanging out and schmoozing a lot right here. So I heard two guys in line behind me waiting for a panel talking to each other. And one guy says to another guy, what's your story? And he answered with this. So Harvard MBA, McKinsey, Goldman. That was his (laughs) quote unquote story. (laughs) And it made me, it made me think, that was an interesting slice of Davos. <laughs> that, that's a, and, and the one thing which you have to understand as well to understand Davos is it's 83% male. And of those males, I would say 95% are wearing identical suits. The official dress code of the World Economic Forum is casual, but everyone ignores it and wears suits. This is the only place in the world where people dress up more than they're, than they're meant to. Felix, what, what color is your shirt right place. now? He's been wearing a, 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 what color would I call it? Peach? Um, Purple? Wine jacket. Burgundy. Oh, a burgundy. Nice. Thank burgundy, you. Sorry, I was searching. Burgundy jacket. Burgundy jacket. So you can spot him across the room really easily. I've also, I've also for the, the past couple burgundy of years, jacket. decided that I am going to actually adhere to the dress code and wear jeans, which has made me very comfortable and happy for the past couple of years. But... Felix kind of insulted me on the first day because I was wearing a dress and a blazer. And he kind of looked at me as if, you have got to be kidding me. Do you really dress up for Davos? (laughs) You are such a newbie. So I have another very important question. This is is the, the most important one I have all day, which is, a lot of the young econ and finance writers on Twitter have been joking about, um, or not joking, we've, we've been plotting a Davos-themed action movie, trying to figure out, like, if North Korea attacked Davos and all the rich had to, like, kind of, you know, fight back. How, you know, how would they defend themselves and what James Bond-esque gadgetry would be well, unveiled? Well, so this is, this is where Jenny can talk to you about the security, because after you've come here a couple of years, you, it almost becomes invisible, but... It's absolutely bizarre how many... I don't know where they get these policemen. Someone suggested last night that they got them from Italy because there's a lot of Italian being spoken, but there's no way they've all come from Switzerland because they are on every corner and they have 98 weapons. They make American cops look extremely underarmed. There are are snipers on every single rooftop. You have to go through... checks just coming up the road there's only one road into town and literally miles and miles down the road there are roadblocks and it's unbelievable and there's this rule of security by the way which says that the security in davos can only ever get tougher it can never get weaker so anytime there's a terrorist attack or anyone feels uh, nervous they increase the security in davos and then once they've increased it that it just stays there forever so last night we were tr- we were trying to leave and some very, very important people, because obviously there are a lot of 
very important people here, but a very, very important person had was going to come down the road in a car, and so all of us had to step back behind a barrier. And the indignation of these very important people to have to defer to this very, very important person who was driving by <laughs> as we stood in the cold, flanked by these you know people with machine guns. So clearly they weren't going to mess with them too much, but they were trying to be a little bit outraged without inciting... Uh, the guns. So, Jenny, let me re-ask Kathy's question, which is a really good one, and it's, I think, where we should probably leave this discussion of Davos. Um, the slogan of the World Economic Forum is committed to improving the state of the world. Is this just a convenient excuse to make people think that they're, you know, not devilish capitalists, or are they actually making the world a better place? My cynical answer would, of course, be I think they are too busy drinking champagne to be making the world a better place. But I have been to a few panels since I've been here, which would require me to be intellectually honest and say they are attempting to address some serious problems in the world from curing cancer to inequality to poverty. So there is an attempt to sit down and talk about that. And that's got to be better than nothing. I mean, it's better than them sitting in their boardrooms discussing how to increase their profits. So if they sit down do, do you and think have an awareness these, yeah. approach, that's you know, better you think, than nothing. Do you think that talking about these things actually has any effect? Well, if they then put some money behind it and then they decide to do it, but they're not going to get anywhere if they don't start by talking about it. I mean, it's not as if they're going to wake up one morning and just write a check for... $50 billion to Oxfam. I mean, I think they have to be... there. You have to raise a level of awareness about so, what some of the so issues uh, are. So my, my, my answer is the next week in Berlin, there's something called Gavi, which is where people actually spend money to make the world a better place. And it's going to be, I think, $7.5 billion, something like that. And it seems to me that Gavi is obviously an institution devoted to making the world a better place and putting money behind it and doing it. And Davos is where people self-congratulate each other and pat themselves on the back just for talking about it. And I, and one of the great Davos men, you know, there's this idea of Davos man, one of the people who's been here more than anyone else is Bill Clinton. But when Bill Clinton started his own version of Davos, the Clinton Global Initiative, the thing he hated most about Davos is the fact that it's all talk and no action. And so his big thing at the Clinton Global Initiatives has is, is always been, if you're going to get up on stage, you need to have written a check. You need to commit to doing something. You need to actually do it. Because this is really mostly 99% talk. And I can think. I also add, hot air. Felix, that you know, the question I ask, it, I want to take it at a, little, a slightly higher level. I mean, the people... Like that, we don't want to assume that Davos exists and then ask if there's any marginal, tiny bit of positive benefit. I want to ask, you know, the overall existence of Davos included. So, like, there's the effect that people have of being invited to Davos and, and getting involved in those ego games and wanting to be re-invited to Davos. And like that, I would say that's probably a negative effect over. It's very elitist. And I think, uh, and, and they love to talk about inequality here. I mean, maybe a little bit less th this year than in the past couple of years, but inequality is still a big topic. And there's absolutely no doubt that the net effect of Davos is certainly to increase inequality rather than to decrease it. Yeah. I'm not sure the mechanism by which that actually happens, but I will say there is a very deep irony to the fact that 1,700 people fly in on private jets and then have a discussion about climate change and drive around Davos in these vans 
um, which but may they, or but may they not have little it, but they stickers have, on they have little them stickers on green. the side saying they're green <laughs> as they dash around in their cars instead of walking. By the way, everything is about a five-minute walk, so you can easily walk, but these people are choosing to get in cars and drive with an eco-awareness on the side of it. So there is, there's plenty of hypocrisy to be identified there, there is literally no end we could devote this entire podcast 10 times over to davos hypocrisy we won't because we're going to move on to uh, another to the probably the single most interesting topic of conversation in davos this year but before we do that i am going to tell you about my sponsor Stamps.com, who are great. We like Stamps.com, and not just because they're my sponsor. Um, you can get postage on demand, and you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter and any package using your own computer and your printer. And right now, you use the promo code SLATEMONEY for a no-risk trial and $110 of bonus offer fabulousness, including $55 of free postage. And by the way, that's discounted free postage. All of the stamps and postage that you pay is less than you would pay at the post office, which now you don't need to queue up at. It's all good. So go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, enter Slate Money, and you're set. Stamps.com, enter Slate Money. Um, Kathy. Yeah. What is the single biggest thing that we're talking about in Davos? You're going to tell me even though you're not there. <laughs> That's right. I, I can read newspapers, which is good. It's big news all over the world. So this week, Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank, finally announced after many months of waffling um, a quantitative easing program for Europe to the tune of $1.3 trillion. Okay. What, what, Jenny, what, what is that? What is quantitative easing? Um, I think John Cassidy described it as Christmas with central bankers as Santa Claus. <laughs> nice. I like that description. Uh, wh they want to pump a bunch of money into the economy to try to jumpstart uh, Europe, which is um, facing deflation, which is obviously not good for Europe, not good for the UK, and uh, has ripple effects all around the world. So it is a mechanism which both the United States and Britain also tried. Uh, many people would say successfully, uh, with some uh, unintended consequences as well, or intended consequences. But it's a way of trying to jumpstart the economy. And the way you do it is by printing money. And Mario Draghi is going to print 60 billion euros a month for at least 18 months so that until September 2016. And at the end of that, he's going to keep on printing the money unless and until he gets the inflation rate in Europe back up to about 2%. Exactly. So the goal of a central bank is to target an inflation rate. Inflation should be about 2%. Their inflation rate is negative. Yeah. That's not good. So you know, when this announcement came out, it definitely exceeded expectations. Uh, the market didn't think the program was going to be as big and bold as they kind of made it. One of the things that's important here is that Draghi's saying they're going to keep printing these euros and buying government bonds with them until inflation goes up. And that open-ended promise is one of the reasons people are sort of excited that it says they're really serious. And as a result, you saw a lot of, uh, you know, Photoshop or there was a lot of talk of Mario Draghi dragging out his bazooka. That was like the metaphor everyone was choosing to describe this, a firing a bazooka. And like there were Photoshop jobs of this going around online. But like... I, th I think you kind of have to temper expectations, right? I mean, there's only the, the effect of QE, of quantitative easing, uh, was somewhat ambiguous in the United States and in Britain. Um, Europe has much deeper problems than a, a, this sort of slightly indirect central bank action but, can okay, fix, I so think. Okay, so wait, I mean, this has already had huge effects on the value of the euro, on the um, yields in the eurozone. Jenny? 
Well, no, I'd also say the biggest concern here in Davos is that it, the effects have already been priced in. Yeah, that's that what we've I, yep. been, we, yeah, exactly. We knew it was coming. And if you think the U.S. was effective, part of what made it effective was it was a bit of a surprise. It, it, it was a... Un, not, not a surprise and that nobody knew it was coming, but it came at a much more critical point in the financial crisis. It sort of helped to unclog the financial pipes. And it was, it was, it had a, it had a surprise element compared to this. And a lot of people are saying that's going to make this much less effective. That and the fact that more lending is done through banks in Europe and it's done through the markets in the States. And so this is, it's up to the banks to stimulate the lending. And it's been a big problem in Europe is that Nobody's borrowing. And, and quantitative easing doesn't help banks in the same way that it helps the market because the way the, the mechanism is that the central banks go out into the market and buy bonds in the market and that increases the price of bonds in the market. But if you're just a bank lending money, it's not quite so, such a direct mechanism. So the jargon in Davos is, will the transmission mechanism the banks and the market, will they? Will it work? And I think that's a big question mark. A lot of people don't know that it will. So the markets, the markets are up to, you know, I mean, the European markets are, uh, what? They're, they're up, they're happy. Yeah, and the they're, euro is down, which is good because it makes European companies more, um, But this you know, is day one. I mean, you know, exactly. give it time. Give it by Monday, I bet, you know, there's a little bit more skepticism in the market. So I just like to echo what Jenny said, which is that I mean, you've been hearing for, for weeks of people who wa watch this stuff that, Basically, it was already baked into the market, um, the expectation of a quantitative easing program about half the size. So there's that kind of diluted effect. And also by the European Central Bank's own calculation, this is supposed to stoke inflation by about 0.4% this year and next year. Um, and that's not going to bring them up to their target 2%. So some people are saying this is just not enough. Well, I, okay, I'm going to come in here and be the be a little bit less downbeat on this. It's great that the market was already pricing in quantitative easing because the whole point is to increase prices in the market. And if they'd already started doing that, that's great. If they are now surprised and it's bigger than they expected, that's also great. And more importantly, let's just stop for a minute and realize how far we've come. Because this entire thing, if you ask most Germans, is completely unconstitutional. That The fact that the European Central Bank, which has always been a German-dominated institution, is doing this, would have been unthinkable just a few years ago, which is one of the a reasons... A few months ago. Just a few months ago, which is one of the reasons it didn't happen a few years ago or even a few months ago. And so, let you know, I mean, it's very easy to get caught up in the news cycle and say, well, you know, we knew this last week that this was going to happen this week, but central banks don't run on a week-to-week -week sort of time horizon. And the fact that they've changed the expectations and they've actually done this is a big deal. It is a big deal. You know, and one of the things we've seen in Europe um, is that it, over time, does things which are bigger and bigger and more and more, you know, previously unthinkable. And that Mario Draghi has done a very good job of essentially painting, you know, politically maneuvering the Germans into a corner where they can't object to this too much anymore. And when he gave his, when he gave, he gave this famous speech about how he would do whatever it takes to save the Eurozone. And it turns out that he meant it. And whatever it takes just is, is coming up in new forms. And I don't think necessarily that it's going to end with this QE. In fact, you know, if he doesn't make it to 2% inflation, if Kathy, you're right, and he only gets 0.4% inflation out of this, 
maybe he's going to make it bigger. And speaking of political maneuvering, Felix, um, one thing I find really interesting about the timing of this announcement is um, with respect to Greek elections, which is coming up soon, um, there's a party that's ahead in polls called Syriza that have promised to sort of um, default on Greek debt. And part of the deal with this quantitative easing program is that the, that they're not going to buy Greek bonds unless the party in power agrees to, to pay off their debt. So there's that kind of leveraging going on as well. This quantitative easing, they're buying government bonds, but they're not buying Greek government bonds because Greek government bonds aren't highly rated enough. But also there aren't that many of them, to be honest, because they were already decimated by the last debt Greek, the Greek debt restructuring. That's a slightly different um, issue. But yes, Greece, you know, this is going to be interesting to see whether Greece uh, remains in the Eurozone. We, we have Jenny Anderson here of the New York Times who knows about this much better than the rest of us. So what is your uh, guess? What's your probability that this time next year, Greece is going to be in the Eurozone? 70%. You see, it's now thinkable. A Grexit is thinkable. A Grexit and a Brexit. We have so many things to look forward to in the coming year. All right. I've been much, I've been much more fixated on, on, on Brexit, which I think could... Wait, what is Brexit? Could you explain Brexit, Jenny? Brexit is... So uh, the coalition government in the UK has, been, um, has said that they will call a referendum on Britain's uh, membership in the EU. There are many people in Britain who are extremely pissed off that, that Europe makes all sorts of, the European Union makes all sorts of rules that they don't like and they don't have a say in anything and they don't get their way, so they're going to leave is wow. kind of the sum of it. And uh, so they are going to have, if they win, they'll have a referendum. And uh, Cameron says, Prime Minister David Cameron says it's, uh, he's trying to come up with a sort of reformed position, but the referendum is in or out. So uh, we'll see if Britain stays in the EU. And is that definitely going to happen, the referendum? No. I mean, Labour is ahead in polls right now, but everybody, it, it's absolutely impossible to figure out what's going to happen in the, the you would, You would elections. think that David Cameron would have learned everybody his seems lesson to hate everybody. about <laughs> promising referendums. He promised a referendum in Scotland, and that was a disaster and almost <laughs> le- resulted in Scotland leaving Great Britain. Now he's got a referendum on Europe. Enough with the referendums already, Mr. Cameron. Okay, uh, enough of that topic. We are going to have another <laughs> word from another sponsor, which is GoToMeeting. We love GoToMeeting almost as much as we love Stamps.com because it, you don't need to travel to Davos. You can just you know, go to meeting and, and meet all of these people virtually on your computer screen with webcams and high definition and you can share things and all of this stuff about I would have to travel millions of miles to meet these people goes out the window because you can share screens, you can present in real time, you can have high definition video conferencing and all you need to do to try GoToMeeting free for 30 days is visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial from Citrix GoToMeeting. Um, Jordan, what is topic number three? Topic number three. The big news in uh, the U.S. this week was Obama's State of the Union address. Um, precisely, oh, well, I can't say for sure, but it, it seems fair to guess that precisely nothing he suggested, none of the policies he proposed um, during this speech will probably get enacted by this Congress. However, he is setting the tone for the next, you know, for the next stage of the Democratic Party, essentially. He's he's kind of laying out a potential economic plan for Hillary Clinton, for who knows who. Um, So wait, so hang on a sec. So this, because I'm English and I don't understand American politics, (laughs) 
this don't this state of the, living in America. Yeah. This this you, this speech by the president, yes. which is meant to be a presidential speech, is really not much to do with the executive branch or the presidency, but really he's more acting like the leader of the Democratic Party and and just using his presidential bully pulpit to lay out the Democratic Party agenda. Yeah, I like Obama as, a, as the leader of the Democratic Party more than as the president, actually. Yeah, there's, I, I think that's very right. You know, the bully pulpit is, is pretty, uh, I think, overrated as a policymaking tool like for a president to just kind of, uh, you know, browbeat Republicans into following, doing what he wants to do, but as a way for setting the agenda for your party and saying kind of laying out ideas that other people could adopt and giving them kind of your stamp of approval. I think I think like the State of the Union when all of America's eyes are on you is very powerful. So the big the big theme economically uh, it could be summed up as raise capital gains taxes. Um, of Ooh. course, he said what he directly proposed raising rates from 25 to the top rate from 25 to 28 percent. Um, but there are also other subtle ways he wanted to raise capital gains. He wants to kill the step up in basis rule for people who inherit uh, inherit uh, assets, uh, which essentially would be raising capital gains on the stock you get from your dead grandmother. Before you go on, Jordan, explain like who's paying this. What is capital gains tax, Jordan? Okay, well, capital gains tax is where the value of your asset, your stock, goes up, and you have to pay taxes on the increase. That's all. That is on your capital gain. Okay, so yeah. that's I'm going I'm to correct you a little bit what? there. Right, because yeah. you can have stock which goes up and up and up and up and up, and no one ever pays taxes on that. You only yeah. pay capital gains tax when you sell it. Yeah, so, okay. Oh, so sorry, it's not taxes. It's, you're not just taxing the gain. You're only taxing realized gain. And moreover, you're gains. only taxing that realized gain yeah. if you've been invested for a while. Right? Yes, well, it's long-term capital gain. So it's if you sell after you've held it for a year, you pay the long-term rate. If you sell un after under a year, you're paying it essentially as normal income. But so point being, he wants to raise capital gains taxes. And this has got a bunch of well, obviously has uh, conservatives up in arms. And uh, frankly, a lot of economists. Why, why is that obvious? Why, why would conservatives be up in arms about well, this? Is it just because it's a tax increase and they hate all tax increases? Well, number, or number, is there a reason why they like? Number one, they, the yeah. primary reason. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they have a deep allergy to uh, tax increases, but especially a, a, a crippling allergy a deathly allergy to tax increases on the rich and capital gains mostly uh, uh, the, the lower rate for capital gains primarily benefits wealthy individuals. We are talking about the lower rate on capital gains. And when you say that, what you mean is that if I make money as a rich person by selling something which has gone up in value, the rate I pay on that, which is about 25%, is much lower than the rate I pay on money which I earn through my labor, through working for a living, and which is income tax, which is taxed as income. And my income tax, if I'm a rich person, is going to be 35% or thereabouts, 39%. So, so what happened is that once upon a time, even as recently as the Reagan administration, income taxes and capital gains taxes were the same. And then someone got the bright idea that capital gains is a better kind of income that we want to encourage more or something. And so they reduced the capital gains tax much more than they reduced the income tax. And so now we have this big gap between the two. Which a lot of people call a subsidy for investment. Okay, so we're subsidizing investment. Is this a good thing? Should there be a gap between the capital gains tax rate and the income tax rate or not? So I, I, this, is, this is kind of precisely what I wanted to talk about is 
there's this idea that if you raise the rate, you're going. It, it's sort of a very much ecom 101 concept that if you raise the the taxes on investment, you're going to get less of it, and that's bad for growth. And that's why you should give it a preferential rate. And the thing is, it does make sense in that sort of very, you know, if you think about a rational agent going about how they plan themselves. The problem is when you look at the evidence, there's not, there isn't really any. That, that happens. There's no evidence that raise right now that there, or there's very little evidence, compelling evidence that raising capital gains actually discourages investment. It's very difficult to find any relationship between the two. Lots of people have tried. There have been papers um, by economists trying to understand whether when it was lowered, um, whether there was more investment and they didn't find any signal. And the other thing I wanted to mention is the Washington Post had this really fantastic graph of sort of a map of the United States to show where the people who are actually going to have to pay this extra um, capital gains tax if Obama gets his way, where they live. And it's basically where you expect. They live in New York City and Silicon Valley. So it really is a, a, a progressive tax suggestion by Obama. Okay, and now can I just ask another stupid question? I'm going to ask Jenny because she understands this stuff. Um, t when we talk about more investment or less investment, can you explain what that means? Because it seems to me that if I have a million dollars, I have to put it somewhere. So if you're, and wherever I put it, I'm investing, surely. Like in what way? you put it in your mattress. <laughs> so you can save that money. You yes. can put it in the bank and get a deposit rate on it. But uh, is that deposit not? Deposit rates are fairly lame right now. So right, that is not what you want to do with But that's money. still, I'm still lending money to the bank. It's still debt capital. Right. So it's still investment in a sense, right? Right. I think they want to, the, uh, the Republican line would be they're encouraging ownership, right? They want you to buy companies. They so want they want, so basically stock. they want to they encourage want stock ownership rather than bond ownership, equity over debt, investment in owning things rather than lending money to people. That's the kind of thing they want to encourage yeah. with this. Which, okay. Which is kind of strange, actually, when you think about it, because, the you know, most investment, I think Matt Iglesias made a version of this point, actually, um, this week, but most investment in the or in the US is by big companies that already exist, right? They're like, you know, General Motors invests in a factory, right? And they're not for the most part raising money to do that via stock issuances. They're they're if anything they're they're issuing debt. They they raise money through the bond markets. Um, and when you buy and so stock capital gains Exactly. When you buy stock you're yeah. not really investing in anything. You're just buying stock off someone else who already owns it. And you're just giving a gain to yeah, someone who owns it. It's not really investing in the economy at all. Yeah, there's also this idea that, you know, oh, if you tax investment, people are going to do less of it. You know, there's, there's another way you can think about that behaviorally. You know, people have a certain amount of money they're kind of looking to earn by the time they retire. Or like, you know, rich people have their figure. They want, you know, 300 million or 400 million or a billion, who knows what. And so they're going to try to make money until they essentially hit that number. Um, I can tell and, you and from Davos that this, is, this yeah. is ridiculous. Everyone, everyone, every rich person here <laughs> wants more money. It's yeah. not like they say, no one's ever said, oh, I wanted 300 million and now I've got my 300 million, so now I'm going to stop caring about money. Although, actually... Well, Felix, people who say that just don't go actually, to Davos. Actually, you know what? This is a good segue. <laughs> this is a good segue into the um, numbers round because my number this week is $850 million. Um, and $850 million is the amount of money that George Soros gave to the Open Society Foundations, which are his philanthropies, uh, in 2014, in one year. Uh, George Soros is pretty much the number one poster child in Davos of, of someone who really does have 
more money than he knows what to do with, and he's trying to spend it rather than invest it, trying to make it go down rather than go Bill up. Bill and Melinda Gates are here. They've committed to giving their money away. They write big checks. Yeah, Bill, they do Bill, stuff Bill, with their money. Bill, Bill, Bill Gates is the other one. You know, there, there are basically two. Two. Yeah. <laughs> Out of 2,500. <laughs> Someone do the math. <laughs> um, but $850 million in one year is worth noticing, especially since um, where George Soros spends his money is, is in a much more sort of contentious and political ways than the way that um, Bill Gates spends his money. So I just... I, that was more than I thought it was. And what fascinates me, though, actually, about both Soros and Gates is that no matter how hard they try to give their money away... They just can't keep if, up. If you look at, the, if you look at the, you know, Forbes rich list every year, every year their net worth goes up rather than down. They're failing. Well, this is the great, this is the great you know, virtue. You have a lot of money, you make a lot of money, right? That is the best, the best way. But if you want to give away most of your money before you die, or substantially all of your money before you die, you should be wanting your net worth to be going down. You They're should. failing at this. But I think they want to give away their money in responsible ways. They don't just want to, you know, you, at that level, you have to write a fairly significant check it's, to make a dent in your wealth. It's but that really means, hard. I mean, they could write me what? a check for a billion dollars. I'd be totally cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> I promise to do good things with it. It's like the money. It's sort of like the Mike Bloomberg problem, right? Didn't he have like a staff of 70 or something? I forget the exact number, but like a massive staff dedicated to giving his money away, and that slowed it down. There was like a, a bureaucratic machinery around th- like sending his money. It's, to it's not easy giving away billions. It's surprisingly difficult. But um, Jordan, what's your... This is not even, doesn't even classify as white people's problem. This is like <laughs> Davos exactly. problems. Yeah, what's, it's how not first world problems away. either. Like, what actually is, cons- how, I met yeah, a woman who's a consultant in London, and her job is to help rich people people give their money away that is her full-time job uh, specifically f- city, philanthropic city of London <laughs> exactly. problems. philanthropically how, how well does that job pay it's a very good question I didn't ask um, Jenny you actually have two numbers like we've, two we're, numbers. we've decided you're, we're gonna get two numbers off you because you're that special what's your first one my first number is 18 trillion that is the amount of money that is stashed in tax havens according to Oxfam And it's topical because if everybody here is talking about inequality, a very good way of getting at inequality, rich people are fantastic at tax avoidance, not tax evasion, tax avoidance. And if governments wanted to make a lot of money, they should take um, a better stab at trying to get a hold of that 18 trillion. And they are actually finally slowly doing that. So they're not, they're actually getting together and trying to they are. They are. They're with differing levels of success. Yes, and I could give you some great examples in London as to if your father happens to have been born somewhere like Jamaica, like Chris Hone, then you can be a non-dom, in uh, non-domiciled resident of London, and uh, pay thirty thousand pounds a year to not pay taxes on well, your Chris, billions of dollars of wealth. Chris Hone, of course, being another one of these. You know, I I love doing everything for charity people, but not love so much that he's willing to pay taxes in the UK. He did give a billion dollars to charity, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him credit for that <laughs> did, one. Did he but give he, away the billion dollars or did he just put he, the billion dollars into a foundation which kind of promises to give the money away at some point in the future maybe? He does and then the foundation was run by his wife and then they got divorced in what turned out to be a very public and messy divorce and it appears that he tried to get her uh, kicked off of the board of the foundation. It's very complicated being rich being rich uh kathy what's your wait i have my second number <laughs> wait wait, wait no, you're gonna come back for your second oh, number okay. well i'm gonna bring it down to earth um for uh, for y'all um i don't know if you guys have been listening to sports radio this week at all <laughs> but my favorite favorite thing that happened this week 
was the deflation of the footballs on the playoff games. So my number is 12.5. That's the uh, um, that's the pressure per square inch that the footballs are supposed to be at. But during the Patriots um, game against the Indianapolis Colts last weekend, they discovered mid-game that 11 out of the 12 footballs that were um, being used by the Patriot side were deflated. And Wait, there were different footballs for each side? So yes, I should I should say that twelve footballs before the game, twelve footballs are inspected and then given to each side to take care of during the game, and the uh, this, the con- conspiracy theory is that the Patriots side actually deflated their footballs somewhat to make it easier for their quarterback Tom Brady to grip. I, I would add that this led to an amazing press conference in the uh, U.S. that basically involved Tom Brady sitting in front of a bunch of reporters uh, talking about his deflated balls <laughs> for, like, <laughs> in front of. And it was just like everyone just sat there like slack-jawed. Or, and at one point, Bill Belichick also was talking about how he like kind of tortured the balls to get them into shape for practice and it was like wet sticky balls i mean it was these are okay that was not my angle my (laughs) angle is the following my angle is the following it turns out if you put um if you fill up a ball um a football at the right pressure in room temperature and then it gets cold then the the pressure goes down and it has it has are we are we talking ball shrinkage actually we are Yes. Oh my God. People focus. There's, so my point is that we don't actually know whether this is just a measurement. Well, error. did they the measure other the other team's balls? That, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We can only and, ask. And when we luck. hear that 11 out of 12 of them were too deflated, we don't hear by how much they were deflated. So it's really, it's incredible. Um, and it's fun. And by the way, the Patriots were caught cheating in 2007. So there is a trust issue here. But that's that's my number for the uh, week. I just want to know how you measure this. Do they put it in a bucket of water and see how much that gets displaced or something? I don't. See, that's the other thing. I've heard that the, the pressure gauges are also not all that you know consistent so there might just be like a measurement but let me just you know finish off this little number with with the um (laughs) with the observation that this is clear proof that real football aka soccer is superior to american football because in real football it doesn't matter what the inflation or deflation of the ball is because each team is using the same ball yeah it's true that is a totally different discussion ball buster (laughs) Jordan, <laughs> Jordan, move us out of this ball-related te- territory Please. and come up with a number. Yeah. This is too fun. Um, my number is also football-related, but it's a little, it's it's a little, it's not quite as good as Kathy's. So mine was, you know, bringing it back home to uh, my number is fifty million. Um, that is how many fewer chicken wings, roughly, will be available this year on the market, uh, according to Bloomberg for Super Bowl Sunday, uh, just due to a lower slaughter number of chickens this year. I, they, I couldn't even find why fewer chickens were being slaughtered. I looked around the internet, and no one provided a good answer for that. But as a result, your buffalo wings will probably be a little bit more expensive this year. Apparently, the price in Georgia, which sort of sets the national, it's uh, it's sort of like the national exchanges down there, is up about 8%. Uh, it's, that's, that was, quote, a surge. Who says inflation prices. is going down? What yeah, I know. Oh, right? you know they always the compensate with The only thing being deflated are Tom Brady's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like this, I, I'm, you know, I didn't even know the Super Bowl was happening. 
Although I, I did share a funicular and, today and yeah, we, we might be doing with a, a chap called Joe Montana. Wait, sorry. Did anybody just catch it? Felix didn't know it was the Super Bowl because he was too busy catching a funicular in Davos <laughs> with some important people. With Joe Montana. <laughs> with Joe Montana. With Joe Montana, just who FYI, I know is a football player. Super Bowl is next weekend. But, but I don't think yeah. Joe Montana will be playing because he looked a bit old for that kind of thing. Jenny... I'm feeling a little deflated with my second number. All right, because, what's your second uh, number? Kathy's was so good, but um, I'll throw it out there anyway. Um, what percentage? So this was at a panel this morning at uh, at Davos, and it was a BBC live debate on richer but for whom, uh, you know, are uh, about inequality. And the question was, everyone in the audience, raise your hand if you think the rich are net contributors or predators. And what were you, were you a voter in this what debate? What percentage of... Uh, I was a voter, yes. Um, what percentage of people do you think voted for net contributor versus net predator? Now, to be clear, this is the most plutocratic audience you could possibly imagine. This yep. is not a cross-section of the American electorate or the world <laughs> population. By, by no stretch of imagination. <laughs> this is Davos, man. This was, can we this guess? Was can guess? Can we, want you, want can we all guess, throw yeah. out a number? So, so I'm going to say 75%. What? Contributors or predators? Seventy-five percent contributors. Is the it was okay. the audience poll? That's All my right. guess. Jordan, uh, I I think I think I think eighty-five percent contributors. Okay, well I'm taking the under on this one. I'm gonna say that forty percent say they're contributors and sixty say predators because this is Davos is the one place where you can feel safe about you know being rude about rich people even if you're a rich person yourself. So about nine to one voted in favor of contributors. All right. Uh, never mind. <laughs> wow. Wow. And somebody so tweeted. I, wow. I, I took the under. I should have taken the over. 150%. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Good math. So, uh, so I guess there's, th this, is, this was what I wrote um, a bunch about in the wake of the crisis was that the one thing which has always been missing from Davos is any kind of apology from the people who caused the financial crisis. There's never been any, no, no, no one likes taking the blame for doing anything wrong. And I guess this is just another data point which shows that they love themselves, these people. They really love themselves and they think they're amazing. Wait, they do, and they love being surrounded by PLUs, Fe people like them. <laughs> what? What, what, what would an apology for that look like, though? Would it be like Lloyd Blanfine just like getting on stage and going, like, eh, my bad? Like what, would, like, what would, like, what would it be? Like, how would, how would there, they even do, been, go about there's that? There's been a couple of, of very small ones, um, which I can try and I have a bunch of suggestions of if they're really looking for ways to apologize. <laughs> or but even just to, just to be introspective on what went wrong. So sorry. I have to add this line from another panel, which I did not attend this panel, but I saw it uh, on Twitter, and then I read the story. The Guardian has a good story. Um, Robert Johnson, a former uh, hedge fund director, and, and now said, BFF of George Soros, said, "Quote: I know hedge fund managers all over the world who are buying airstrips and farms in places like New Zealand because they think they need a getaway. Amazing. Because they feel persecuted. Wow." Yeah, and, 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 and by the way, Robert Johnson, Robert Johnson, I have to explain this, is pretty much as far to the left as it is possible to get in Davos. You're not going to find anyone further to the left than Robert Johnson, and he's just hanging out with these hedge fund guys buying airstrips in New Zealand. On which note, we're going to come back next week with a rather more down-to-earth issue of slate money. Um, we only do this 
plutocratic getaway edition once a year. So thank you for putting up with us in this Alpine Gab Fest. Do subscribe to the show because you're not going to get any more Alpine Gab Fest. It's going to be late back to normal programming next week. Search for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave us a review. Write to us. The email address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. Uh, the producer for Slate Money this week was Audrey Quinn. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman and Jenny Anderson, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Mike Pesca, the probing and inquisitive host of The Gist, a daily news show from Slate. Recently, we asked Maria Konnikova if ASMR is bullshit. That term, by the way, didn't exist until a few years ago. We compared LBJ to Obama with historian Julian Zelazar. Lyndon Johnson, even today, uh, would be quite frustrated and have trouble with this Congress. I learned how baby cows are made. You have to be really quick, and you have to know what you're doing without getting stepped on. So we invite you to find all these episodes at slate.com slash the gist. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.